0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: All right. Welcome back to Heritage Radio Network on tour. We're broadcasting live from Fire, Flower, and Fork in Richmond, Virginia. My name is Kat Johnson, and before we kick things off with our next interview, I wanted to quickly thank our fabulous sponsor, Virginia Wine, for making our coverage of the festival possible. I am now joined by two of the South's best food personalities, in my opinion. Um, Siblings, Matt and Ted Lee, grew up in Charleston, South Carolina, and when they left to attend colleges in the Northeast, they missed the foods of their hometown, and they founded the Lee Brothers Boiled Peanuts catalog. Then an editor of a travel magazine asked them to write a story about road tripping through their home state in search of great food, and they embarked on a second career as food and travel journalists, which is how many people know them. Welcome, Matt and Ted.
2: Thank you so much, Kat.
3: Um, And uh, I'm glad you mentioned it because we kind of sweep it aside in the interest of talking about what projects we're working on now, but that whole Genesis story about um, the boiled peanuts that we Refer to internally as the Boiled Peanuts Performance Art Project began 25 years ago. Wow! Spring of uh, 1995 or 1994. 1994. 1994. So June 1st, 1994, Florence Fabricant at the New York Times wrote a little bit about you know boiled pe- peanuts now available by mail order, and that's what put us in business and on this you know harrowing food path we've been on ever since
1: (laughs) well i love that that's kind of the origin of it because it shows that it's so your careers are so rooted in a really deep and real love of southern food can you talk a little bit about what that was like going going away from home for the first time and realizing oh the food isn't necessarily as good as I remember it growing up.
2: Right. I mean, both of us went to colleges in the Northeast. And, you know, when you grow up in Charleston, you really don't have a choice of being into food. Uh, The food is really all around you. And as a kid, you learn how so many of the rites of passage as a child are ones that revolve around food. The first time you shuck an oyster on your own. The first time you put a drop line in the creek and catch a blue crab.
3: Well, and it suffuses all aspects of the culture, everyone, young and old, uh, male and female, are engaged somehow in food and view it as a kind of sport and love, thrill to the, like, this is the right way to make a pie or whatever it is or to shuck an oyster or um, to throw, you know, to make barbecue. And so um, coming out of that world where everyone had an opinion about food and then going up to Massachusetts and finding that some kids didn't know how to peel a shrimp, um, had no idea what boiled peanuts were, seemed um, really sad and pathetic. Um, and But it just clued us into the fact that we still have regional differences in food in this uh, continent. And um, thank God we do, or it would be a, a much more boring world.
2: And I think we both moved to we're in new york city after college and it's, it was a very dynamic time an exciting time you know we're discovering things that we weren't used to like sushi and we were eating edamame you know boiled soybeans in restaurants and thinking how, not only were we homesick for boiled peanuts but we also felt like how could how could boiled peanuts not be something here this is a town a city where everyone so much is available um, and everyone's interested and excited about food, and, and that's where the idea came from. We thought we were going to turn t- New Yorkers onto boiled peanuts. Um, that actually didn't go as well as we thought, and so we had to retract, uh, you know, not retract. but we I'll had never to, like, forget,
3: like, going through the front door of Coyote Ugly. Um, in, in the, the East, East Village, village um, yeah. with a bag of boiled peanuts and approaching the you know, host stand and saying at 3 p.m. and saying, excuse me, would you consider um, selling boiled peanuts on spec behind your bar and being just kind of like hounded out of the place? Like, what the hell are those? Like, those why are these peanuts wet? Disgusting. Um, Cat turds. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh,
2: you know, people thought we were playing on a joke on them. Even the southern restaurants... Because Did they didn't, you know, the southern restaurants at the time, I mean, there were exceptions, obviously, but um, most of them were sort of theme restaurants. And and so on On the rebound from that, we realized um, that we probably weren't going to sell them on a wholesale level to restaurants to carry them. But we knew, partly because of the Florence Fabricant thing that, we, you know, we'd, we'd, we'd gotten written about in the New York Times, that people... Who weren't in the South wanted them.
3: The expatriates came out of the woodwork. Just I to love that
1: you use the term expatriates. For yeah, yeah.
3: I mean, and so you know, the calls came in from Seattle and um, and everywhere else, and so we realized that um, that you know people hold fast to their, especially um, to the nostalgia pleasure point in the brain where it intersects the culinary flavors, uh, sensations, and um, so. Take the path of least resistance sell the mail order sell them at full retail cost and figure out the interface with the shipping companies and um and that's what we've been doing in uh in the initial times it was kind of it was performance art because we had a day job we were temping at vh1 and mtv um to make ends meet and then at a certain point the um the writing career uh Well, it didn't take off, but it started to happen. We had to give up those day jobs and just throw our entire beans into, like, making this freelance life work. Um, And I think we've maybe achieved some kind of balance. (laughs) <laughs> don't quite have health insurance yet, but we're working on we're it. We're working on it.
1: So it was a few years ago, but I, I found a Q and a Q&A sort of thing that you did with Andrew Zimmern. And yes. one of the questions he asked you guys was why haven't you done a restaurant yet? And so I'm wondering oh. if now that you've mentioned that the boiled peanuts didn't go well in the restaurants, but that, that home cooks and, and expatriates living in all over the states that were from the South, like they understood the value and, how, and they wanted the boiled peanuts. Did that have anything to do with like what set you in the kind of a mindset of we're going to focus on speaking to home cooks, preserving that part of our culinary heritage and the restaurants is not necessarily what our goal is.
3: Yes. I mean- we knew enough about restaurant world cuz our uncle is a restaurateur in Toronto of all places. He moved there in the 1970s and doing those part-time jobs up there as pot scrubber and you know, runner and stuff. We could see that and just observing our uncle, that was no life. Um, for us, it's too hard work, it consumes you entirely. Um, it's hard to make a buck in restaurants mm-hmm. and so um
2: and I would say I think um at the same time, you know we were sort of working these odd jobs for our uncle and learning that like maybe we're not cut out for uh, this hard work. It was also at the same time when we were sort of late teens our um you know we grew up in Charleston, and our mom had a, a job where she commuted a lot. Like, she was going to New York. She'd, like, fly out Monday morning and come back Friday evening. And so we were my dad's prep cooks. And the, and both of my parents were really curious cooks. We grew up in a kitchen with... Avid home cooks. Avid home cooks. They had cookbooks around. And I think we were always oriented toward the home kitchen. Um, just loving that arena of, you know, learning um, from a really young age. Mm-hmm
1: so of all the things that you guys spend time on now which is a lot of things um you're at events you're traveling you're writing you're doing tv um cookbooks of all the things you're focusing on what what right now is making you excited and what do you want to like ideally spend more time doing
3: well um lately we've gotten into non-cookbooks that is food books that are non-fiction and um we've spent four years researching our next project, which is um, being published in April. Um, And it was a real struggle um, to do long form writing. When you write a cookbook, you know, we like to go long on the head notes, but that might be three paragraphs. Um, And it's quite another thing to weave together um, historical research about food and interviews with food practitioners and and um, over the course of four years and to try to make it make sense, I can't even remember what I wrote three weeks ago. And so you're constantly rereading your work. And especially when you collaborate with your brother on a writing project, it just makes for very slow going. That said, we love the process and, and, and it's really kind of a deeper way to express what you want to say about food um, to write that kind of book. We kind of feel like maybe publishing is headed more in that direction anyhow. And so, you know, maybe the next thing will be a food book. But
2: Have you said what it's about? No, well, I was, I was th- keeping it kind of mysterious.
3: Okay. Tell us, right. tell us. Um, uh, April 9th, uh, it's... Uh, how would you describe April it? April 9th, 2019. It's a deep dive into the world of uh, catering in New York City. We embedded as... Ten dollars an hour prep chefs and Fiesta chefs. We interviewed everyone from Danny Meyer to the Liz Newmark, party rental salesman in Teterboro, New G- Jersey, and just really did this three sixty sort of um, uh, assessment of like what catering is, how it got here from um, you know from there, which was the nineteen sixties, the modern catering it's era sort of began. Fairly
2: modern history.
3: Mm-hmm. That it is a totally weird. Into. Um, subculture of food and it really has not been treated um, to this degree in popular culture and so we're excited to um, share that those insights with everyone um, in the spring
1: what made you from the beginning think this is a topic that we need to write about and then what were some of the if you can tell us any of the like very surprising things that you learned
3: well, so it uh, relates directly to the Fire F- Flower Fork Festival that we're in here because um, P- uh, Patrick Phelan, who's the chef at the new restaurant Long Oven, and Stephen Satterfield from Miller Union, um, uh, occasioned our first window, our first glimpse into that subculture. Um, Stephen was cooking a James Beard House dinner, and um, we were doing the, the hors d'oeuvres and the specialty cocktail. For, we we love Stephen. We've known him for a long time. And it was just kind of a collaboration, Um, but he was doing all the the main courses. And in pure Stephen Satterfield style, it was like six or eight courses of beautifully composed um, uh, plates, a wonderful succession of food. Um, And he was smart enough to know he was only bringing one chef with him from Atlanta to bring in a friend. He had never met this guy, Patrick, but he knew that he was a caterer, an executive chef at a top catering firm in, in Manhattan. And... Patrick came in with Juan and Jorge Soto, his top lieutenants, champion proofers, and they ripped that dinner. They arrived at 5 p.m. They'd never cooked in the James Beard House. They'd never met Stephen. They'd never cooked his food. They had no idea what the recipe was, but they rocked it. They crushed it. And Stephen just stepped front to the you know other side of the line, expediting and, <laughs> and, and plate wiping and garnishing because um, they did it and. And the techniques they used, the language they used, um, were so different from restaurant right. world. I mean, that was it—is that the like, ingenuity? This is a world um, of food crafting so different from restaurant world, which now everyone knows.
2: There were, you know, the James Beard House is eighty, basically eighty covers, and there were two courses back to back that required searing, and they the griddle space—they didn't have enough griddle space. The kitchen's
1: tiny at the right. James Beard House.
2: So these caterers—they just took sheet pans, turned them on top of burners raged them and just seared everything you know they, they were fearless in a way that we had not experienced. and afterwards um we we went out for beers and we were just like oh man you guys crushed it you're amazing you're fantastic how and they said you gotta understand that was 80 covers like we don't start sweating until it's like 800. and the, and the other thing they said was like you gotta consider like we didn't have to build that kitchen in most events that we do we're
3: they're setting up they're in an elevator vestibule or out in a grassy field. Or the like, loading
2: dock of the Museum of Modern Art, you know, and they're building the kitchen at 3 p.m. and bringing in the food and building the kitchen and then serving out at It's all about
3: or high volume, high expectations. In New York City, certainly, like rubber chicken doesn't fly. High expectations cooking in the most wretched kitchen circumstances. How do you deal with that? Um, on some of the most momentous nights of people's lives. Um, you know, you can't F up the wedding, right? And, um, and so we just knew we had to, you know, dwell in that world. That was so much more interesting to us so than um, publishing another Southern cookbook.
2: So, so we had said, said to Patrick, like, we would love to trail you. And he was, said, I, I don't really have room for that. What I need always is... More hands. Two hands. Manos. Um, and so, you know, if C- you want to join the team, join the team. And so that's... So we did.
1: This makes me think that this, when this book comes out, it's going to be something where chefs realize, maybe in order to make myself a better chef in a restaurant, I should go join a catering team for a little while. Do you think that'll be the case?
3: It's I- a new language. And, I mean, you feel that and you recognize that when you see it in action. And I think a lot of... It's already happening um, that a lot of restaurant chefs are realizing... A way to um, grow their restaurant and their reach, um, you know, into the general public, is to do more events and more off-site stuff. And a lot of them do. A lot of them hate that stuff. Um, it requires a ton of organization, totally different mindset and set of strategies for tackling that. But some of them love that challenge. Yeah. Anita and so- Lowe, um loves it and hates it. She loves uh, using a hot box. Um, which which has
2: explain it's the aluminum cabinet on wheels that you um,
3: use to cook and finish food on site, wherever you happen to be over Sterno. So you
2: transport the food in it and then you transform it into an oven with Sterno and sheet pans once you get to the site. Um, But that's, you know, Steven Satterfield, the chef at Miller union, he, once he had that relationship with Patrick, that enabled him to do events at a larger scale that he never would have considered. And so they've collaborated on a bunch of events now where Stephen can cook for 300 people in a field in suburban Atlanta and he brings in Patrick and Patrick's team and, and they have a, you know... he It's a
3: logistical intelligence that you either have or you don't have about a particular site or a particular set of, you know disadvantageous circumstances like it's raining you're on the grass Um, you know there's no electric hookup Um, it's a certain type of event at weddings you have to be ready for long toasts. what if the toast goes on 20 minutes extra and you had calibrated the lamb to come out at a certain time because you wanted it medium rare well 20 minutes could ruin that right certainly fish oh my god you know the overcooked salmon
1: so it's balancing like these insane logistics, right. almost like supply chain level logistics. Yes, but being able to improv yeah. on a moment's notice.
3: Absolutely. I mean, the, it's the all about the food torture. The the because the food really is stressed and strained and pulled this way and that way, and you just you can't truly be a perfectionist in the catering business. Yeah, and you we have to be. There you are have to various analogies best, that but. we that we
2: bring up, but um, one is uh, the 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 venue kitchen is sort of like a a mobile army surgical hospital triage is a big deal because you're reprioritizing on the fly depending on what contingencies you
3: encounter calamities um we should cut off the conversation here and embargo it for another discussion with you in april (laughs) when the book is coming out it's called hot box
1: hot oh great you
3: can pre-order it on amazon
1: check that out. Well, this, is, this has been just very cool. Um, I did not expect to have a conversation. Yeah, about
3: you're, you're you're breaking the news.
1: Amazing. Well, Cook- thanks for like sharing some details about it. I think it's going to be super interesting to hear about a part of the food industry that uh, many people don't pay very much attention to. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but I kind of want to pivot back a little bit to cookbooks. Yeah. Um, specifically, you guys do a cookbook camp? Mm-hmm. Cookbook yes. Cookbook food camp. Yeah. Can you talk about that and, and sure. what people take away from that when they're mm-hmm. working on their own projects?
2: Absolutely. So,
3: every chef, especially, but a lot of people, civilians besides, have a dream of a cookbook. They just like, you know, love that idea of making permanent my food philosophy. You know, there's something about that that's so appealing. You know, my restaurant lifespan might be 10, 15 years, um, optimistically, it might be longer. And to memorialize your viewpoint about food in cookbook form, Is really satisfying to think about, just to know that, like, that book will live on, will outlive you. Um, It's immortality in in a fashion, um, and also just a fun project to tackle. Um, So time and time again, chefs that hit us up, can I pick your brain? You know, how do I do this? There isn't a lot of information out there, and the people involved in publishing cookbooks and the agents aren't very helpful, and other cookbook authors aren't very helpful telling you how to navigate how do I get an agent? How do I craft the proposal? How much of the book do I have to have in in advance? You know, there's all, all these questions you have, and there's no one source to do it. So we just decided, forget it. We're going to do a two-day curriculum, intense, like boot camp, like 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. on a Monday and Tuesday. And we're going to take these chefs, six at a time, through the standards and practices of cookbook publishing, how to run a photo shoot, But at the beginning, how to tell your story, like what is my food, how do I use words to describe my food? And one of the early decisions
2: you have to make, we sort of take it in series of the kinds of decisions you have to make. There's six seminars, three on each day, and the first one is all about writing. It's basically writing exercises. Remedial college. Um, (laughs) And it's sort of like the decision you need to make is, are you going to be writing the book or are you going to be having a collaborator help you with the book? Um, because you know even if you're the, a great writer you may need a collaborator because you don't have the time you know and sort of getting them to understand like what are the holistic um, what are the holistic uh, experience like what is your experience like that you need to make decisions that related to like your time like a lot of the chefs who come to our our program have two restaurants the, the the notion that they're ever going to find time in the margins of two restaurants is
3: almost a uh, fantasy. So um, that they'll inevitably need a facilitator of some fashion of some kind. Um, so like David Chang, he always uses a co-writer. You know, yeah.
0: There's and no
2: shame in that. There's no shame in that, and those collaborations can be amazing. You know, April the only Bloomfield thing that and J.J. Is JJ Good that
3: you get it done. You know, and so um, how do you achieve that? And how
2: do you make those decisions? And and we've had chefs come to our you know. Uh, younger chefs come to our our sessions um, and maybe they've been on top chef or they've been on chopped and they see their friends you know having cookbooks and they think that now is the time and we'll say you know be realistic if is now the time to do a book because that's another decision you have to make is like cuz if you're do you own your restaurant that's another decision is the decision book about a you people, or if,
3: about the restaurant you know is it the restaurant book that you sell off the bar or is it really more an expression of you and your personality and your thinking about food? And frankly, we have to ask them all, what do you have to say about food? You know, what do you stand for? And, um, like
2: how is your book going to be different from the
3: ones that are out there? my, My cooking is fresh, seasonal and local is not differentiating you know, you have to go several levels deeper than that. Like, who are you? But also, how did you come to be here? And um,
2: there are examples of chefs who aren't owners of their restaurants who did work on cookbooks in the margins of that, thinking that the restaurant would be there by the time the book came around, and it wasn't there for whatever reason. There's numerous examples, whether they were fired, you know, whether the they were typical fired, whether the typical cookbook project
3: closed, takes about three years at a minimum. And so a lot can happen in three years at the restaurant level and in publishing. Your editor might get fired or sent off somewhere else or accept a better job. And then, I mean, publishing is a miserable business. But um. (laughs) (laughs) just... Just to sell our, our yeah. talents better. but we can help. That's why you need the boot camp. Well it was really that. therapy for us because we get to unload all of our bad experiences yeah. in publishing and th- you know, so that you don't have to experience that.
2: I think from the outside it would appear to people like our books have won awards. Everyone has won awards. Um, and it looks so beautiful and it, and and they look beautiful. We're very proud of them. But people assume that that was the result of uh, an experience that's like the appearance of the book. And it's actually a ton of hard work. It's so much hard work. And the chef really has to decide whether they want to do that work, um, whether that's the best Expenditure of their time and energy, and in a lot of cases, it is. You know, well, and
3: let's end is. this discussion on a happier note. I mean, the reason that we do this, and the reason we remain interested and believe in in cookbooks, is that they remain a viable business. Uh, you know, in publishing, hardcover book, uh, cookbooks sell beautifully, and people still love them, respond to them, share them, and um, view them as an important cultural touchstone. And um, it will ever be thus, um, especially for restaurateurs who can sell 10 books a day out of a right. restaurant, which kind of puts you in bestseller status at the New York Times. One so. of
2: our uh, alumnus of boot camp is Paul Fairbock of the Big Jones, Big Jones in Chicago. It's a great southern restaurant in Chicago. And I'm pretty sure he sold a two-book deal after doing our boot camp. And one of his struggles was about, like, you know, I want to do a restaurant book, but I want to do a culture book. And we were like, but you don't have to. You don't have to decide. You can do both. Pitch and both. so he's mm-hmm. doing both. And, um. Well, that
1: was one thing I was going to mention was obviously publishing and uh, journalism, you know, mac- food magazines in particular are having a really hard time right now um, moving to digital a lot. But like you said, cookbooks, hardcover cookbooks are doing really well. Yeah. And it's a, a really exciting time. I mean, we get tons of cookbooks to our office right. with cookbook-related uh, podcasts. And it's really exciting to see, like, a wide range of voices, chefs, non-chefs, home cooks, um, people from all over the world that are writing some really incredible books that are making it attainable to cook like Chinese food from a very specific region, for example. Do you think that that's a... I mean, I'm I'm hoping that it's not a trend, that that's kind of the way cookbooks will continue to go.
2: I think that that's the way it's going to continue to go. I mean, I'm so excited by the the new crop of cookbooks every season because I think in general they're telling deeper stories, um, you know, from regions and and micro-regions and just stories we haven't heard of. Like, you know, I think of Von Diaz's recent book about, you know, she... Grew up in Atlanta, but with Puerto Rican ancestry, and that that sort of merging of Puerto Rican and and um, and Southern food, um, you know, uh, turnip greens and tortillas. Uh, Eddie Hernandez's book—that's another one from Atlanta—that's about that crossover, and and those stories are amazing. The food that comes out of those stories are amazing. The recipes, um, and I just I just think it's an exciting time, and it, you know, it's interesting. I think cookbooks are ever on the increase, and and there are, and I think back to when we did our first cookbook, and when we sold that, when we sold our fir- first cookbook from Proposal, people said, "Oh my God, you're doing a Southern cookbook! Like, does the world really need a Southern another Southern cookbook?" Uh-huh. And, but <laughs> people, what people don't understand is that ten thousand like, Southern cookbooks later, cookbooks the answer are is like yes. no- instructional novels.
1: And the ones the that you ones. mentioned, Vaughn's and, and Eddie's, are showing how diverse Southern food really exactly, is.
3: Exactly,
2: exactly. So the story only gets more. Deep, but it's reflective of the
3: fact that the audience for cookbooks is actually growing, or at least diversifying. um, You know, we're still working our way out of a dark ages when you know home cooking was considered the province of a woman. You know, and and the reality is that like we're still working out of that that era. That sort of mid-century
2: hangover when the actual I
3: can't tell you how many elderly men like come to our events or book signings and like, you know, I retired from a career doing insurance or, you know, farming or whatever. And I just love cooking Rachel Ray. I love her stuff. I buy all her books. I, I, you know, every other evening I'm in my kitchen just like, don't bother me. It's my, my comfort zone, my favorite space. I'm just exploring new flavors. And it's like, yeah, you go girl. Like, um, (laughs) You know, this is the world. You could have embraced it 30 or 40 years ago, but at yeah. least you found it, you know. It finally come Now home. at age 70. <laughs> so, yeah. um, But that excites me because, the, you know, that guy's consuming, um, you know, cookbooks. He's consuming, you know, uh, published food products. He's listening to Heritage Radio, and uh, it's all good.
2: And it's interesting that, you know, we we very much think that cookbooks are ever on the increase in quality Quality of the stories being told, the range of stories being told. Oh, but and the we design, also, the way they're presented is. We also have a, another nowadays. parallel track of wanting to keep the out-of-print cookbooks that were influential alive. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have this other project we do with Rizzoli called the Lee Brothers Classic Library, where we take cookbooks from our own collection that are out of print and bring them back into print in a new edition.
3: Um, Usually making some kind of formal improvement that, um, that allows it to reach a modern audience um, without changing the vibe you know, while keeping the authenticity of the original document.
1: Yeah. And one, one of those books is, you have it here um, at Fireflower Fork, The Galloping Gourmet. Uh, yes. Do you want to quickly mention that? And then we'll also plug that sure. you talked in length about that on A Taste of the Past, episode yeah. 311. Well,
3: the first book in the series was Princess Pamela's Soul Food Cookbook. And she was a New York icon, 1969 cookbook that was like published poorly in the sense that it was published on cheap newsprint, a small, tiny thing, like a paperback. But and so we were able to scale it up, make it hardcover. With The Galloping Gourmet, it's actually called The Graham Care Cookbook. That's his name. Graham Care. uh, It was his uh, first U.S. book and it was just on the brink of his superstardom and it actually had great integrity. It was not like uh, just a shameless TV um, tie-in. Tie-in thing. Um, And his approach was uh, ridiculously modern. It reads like Nathan like modernist bread. It's got this incredibly modernist layout it has three forms of measurement for every ingredient metric US imperial um, way ahead of its time and really kind of flavorful and cool because it reflects the fact that he developed it over seven years in New Zealand and so it has a South Pacific flair to it um, that you see in the fish species and uh, a lot of the vegetables Um, really fascinating book and the guy's alive so we were able to get him to weigh in and you know, hand annotate some like tips and tricks that bring it up in, into the modern era because 1969 was a long time ago.
1: Mm. Um, well, my last question for the two of you is just to give us a quick outline of the things that you were doing while you're here for Fireflower and Fork, both mm. that you've done and then have left to do, if any.
2: Sure. So we did a dinner last night at Long Oven, um, which, uh, uh, you know, we Talked about Patrick Phelan and this collaboration we've done in the past with Patrick Phelan and Stephen Fett Satterfield. Um, and so we did a, a, a big dinner there that was vegetarian, which was exciting. Um,
3: when he says we did a dinner, what he really means is we dipped some radishes in sesame seeds yeah. and pixie dust. Yeah. That was the as only thing we did. As the native, uh, as One the home of cooks, the hors d'oeuvres. It,
1: it,
2: you have to understand that Long Oven, the team is not just Patrick, it's Patrick, it's Andrew Manning, who's actually the executive chef. And um, Megan Fitzroy, Megan Fitzroy Phelan, uh, Patrick's wife, who's the pastry amazing pastry chef. Um, so they did the six courses. Um, the Lee brothers, being home cooks, were only really allowed to do one canapé, and, <laughs> and we also traveled in yesterday morning, so it had to be it very took everything simple. Everything
3: out of us to do one yeah. canapé.
1: How hard was it to source those radishes, guys?
3: It was.
2: I actually brought them. From, I brought them from the, the Union Square Green Market. Uh in New York? I, yep. He I bought them yesterday them. morning.
3: Any self-respecting chef on the run has to travel with his or her food. Absolutely. Because uh, you don't want to be left short. Absolutely. Yeah, the FedEx beautiful. driver doesn't show up.
2: It was like a quartered radish dipped in creme fraiche. Um, South Carolina creme fraiche, actually. Yep. He'd brought Low that. country cream. What rate. a good mashup. And then dipped in a sesame spice, which was toasted sesame, some sumac, some Aleppo pepper. Um, just a really simple one-bite canapé.
1: Um, and yeah.
3: Oh, and some sea salt, Bulls Bay sea salt. From, yes, uh, Bulls Bay sea salt South from South Carolina.
2: We try to bring in some South Carolina flavored everything we do.
1: And then you did a class here at Food U. We
2: did a program at Food U this morning,
3: all about the cookbook reissue series, um, and, uh, and and it was talking really about the journey of you know how you take an old cookbook and make it new again, and, and um, the twists and turns along the way. Um, especially with the princess pamela project
2: and now we're speaking with you and from here we're going to go on i think we're going to go to sub rosa bakery i think i'm going to go back to long oven tonight to eat because i I actually just want to take it through and they they're doing such interesting food there and such a great perspective on on food
3: and ingredients and they have a number of cool panels just about to begin um I know that Philip Rhodes, uh, the editor at Garden and Gun magazine, is uh, doing something about.
2: Um, it's about historical recipes. Historical recipes, are and, similar to ours. Um, that's the exciting thing. Is um, you know, I think doing a festival like this, it's really about looking forward. Um, but there are a lot of sessions where you can like, we're 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 sift taking through the sift through the past and sort of get some inspiration to go through the, to the future. Um, it's a really you know, it's a a great great place to be.
1: It's a great place to learn and get inspired and mm-hmm. sure. talk to really great people like the two of you. So thank you both well, for sitting oh, down with thank me. Thank you, Cat. Yeah. It's been fun. Um yeah. I've been speaking with Matt and Ted Lee um from Fireflower and Fork in Richmond, Virginia. My name is Cat Johnson. I want to thank once again our sponsor Virginia Wine for making our coverage of the festival possible, and we will be back in just a minute with more interviews from Fireflower and Fork.